Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. I'm super excited to have you here today. We have a very special guest, Sophie Price, from the Museum of Tropical Queensland in Australia. We had um, another curator from the that museum on Maddie McAllister. So it was really awesome to get to learn more about the awesome Museum of Tropical Queensland. And um, just quickly before we get into the episode, I do briefly mention uh, towards the middle end of the podcast that I will be pursuing my master's degree in bioarchaeology. At the time, I wasn't sure if I would have made my announcement yet, but um, I have. If those of you don't don't follow me on Instagram um, or Twitter, I'll be attending George Mason University for my master's in bioarchaeology in the fall. I'm very excited. And just to give you some context when you're listening to that part of the episode, I hope you enjoy and I hope you're having a great week. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, welcome to the podcast, Sophie. I'm so happy that you're here today. So just to briefly introduce Sophie Price to our listeners, she is an assistant curator at the Museum of Tropical Queensland. Some of you may remember we had another guest from that museum, Maddie McAllister. So let's just start by, you know, when did you start working there? Kind of what was your journey to becoming a curator? Thank you so much, Gabby, for having me. I'm super stoked to be here. Um, so I started up here in Townsville at the museum three years ago um, in January. So I was originally in Brisbane down in southeast Queensland, working at the Queensland Museum there, um, which is part of the Queensland Museum Network. 
also um, the Museum of Tropical Queensland is part of that network too. So transitioned up to here to work as the assistant curator in January 2019. So it's been an absolute whirlwind since then. Awesome. And you mentioned to me that you were born and raised in Australia. How close is that to where you are now? Kind of are you in the same area? Um, some might say that depending on how you look at it on a map. <laughs> so I'm still in Queensland. I was born in Brisbane, but I grew up in a small little country town called Imbul, um, which is on the Sunshine Coast. So Southeast Queensland, about two hours north of Brisbane. Um, so where we are now in Townsville is about a 16 hour drive from there. So it's quite far up the coast wow. <laughs> for us. I mean, we do a lot of driving and a lot of distance all the time. So we're like, oh yeah, it's North Queensland, but we're in the same state, which is just wild for people outside of Australia. Theoretically, how long would it take to go from like coast to coast? Oh God. Maybe how many miles? Cause you probably don't know the time off the top. Of your I mind. don't even know the distance. I mean, <laughs> we okay, usually... we're going to do a quick Google. Do a quick Google. I, so last year I drove from here all the way up to Cape York, which would, if you did it in one trip, would have been like 20 something hours, I think, to go straight from here. And this is already like more than halfway up the coast of Queensland. So we haven't even gone outside of another state yet. As the crow flies north to south, it's 4,000 kilometers or 2,500 miles. It's and... Way. I think it's probably a little less east east to west. But. Yeah. Wow. But it's crazy. Like you can't really drive across. Well, you can't easily drive across the country in Australia. Whereas, you know, you go to Europe, it's so much easier to get from country to country. So yeah. we are a little beautiful isolated island over here, but um, there's a lot of benefits. <laughs> a lot of benefits. Yeah. Benefits. I mean, talk about like when you're studying the Aboriginal culture, it's literally, you have geographical boundaries. Because even in North America, you know, we have Central America, Canada, like there are, there is some crossover in when we're looking at Indigenous peoples. So it's really fascinating. And I actually know a bit about like the colonization of um, Australia. And my favorite thing is that before humans arrived, like the largest mammal was just the bird. I can't remember what the name of the bird was. Um, and I don't just, even like, know the names either, but I always love the like massive megafauna and whatever, yeah. and the, like giant wombats and giant kangaroos hopping around. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I just knew about oh, this yeah. one bird. I must be like a, not an ostrich, but something. Maybe it was like the emu or something that was like yeah. giant. So cool island, it's like wild. The way that things grow on islands, there's like island dwarfism, and then there's like that where it's like the opposite <laughs> because there was they were the largest predators, so nothing was killing them. Just Absolutely. I think it's crazy with Australia as well. I mean, I don't know as much about Indigenous cultures from other countries, obviously, mm-hmm. as they do Australia, but, you know, we do a lot of work with looking at different country areas for our First Nations people. And even within, you know, Townsville, where I'm based, we have um, the Wulgarukabar and the Bindle people are the traditional owners of this area. And Townsville's not that big of a, you know, it's a regional city, but the area is so broad and there's so many people working and living in that space and have been mm-hmm. for thousands of years. So it's just, it's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and we'll get to talk more about like the specifics of your research with Aboriginal peoples, but I'm kind of curious, what is like a day to day Oh, so excuse me. What does an average day look like in your life as a museum curator? 
Gosh, I love that question because I never really know how to answer it. <laughs> it's one of those like, yeah. oh, if I had to put my job in a nutshell, um, it's really like I love being a museum curator and it's so diverse what we get to do every day. So I think if I had to sort of quantify it into different areas that I work in, it's exhibitions work or there's research and collections work or there's outreach so all of that is intertwined and depending on what projects that we're focusing on it varies completely so I mean last year or the year before last sorry when we were shut down because of COVID and we were closed um, for renovations as well we were doing so much outreach and collection work so we got to do all of these big hands-on projects um, in the collection, restructuring how we stored things and taking photos and rehousing objects, which was, you know, that beautiful physical stuff that we never really get the chance to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. And then, for example, the last six months we've been developing um, or sort of in the intensive period of developing this new exhibition that we've just installed. And so a lot of our day-to-day stuff was content writing and making sure the, the objects that we were selecting were appropriate for display and working with designers and doing all that sort of jazz so yeah it it really varies and I mean getting to do things like this outreach wise all of this podcast work and social media that's such an incredible part of the job as well yeah yeah part of that has been you have you know your own personal social media which I feel I wasn't like a big social media person like I kind of just had it it was cultural whatever and then all of a sudden you have this new account Sophie Curatorial which Mm -hmm. is part of your job in explaining what the museum has to offer but also how your research fits into the larger scope of what the museum does for the community and for the country not even just for the community for the country because really I mean especially if we're talking about somewhere like I was saying that's as geographically isolated as Australia all the research you're doing is really like, you can say this is having a tangible impact on the history of my country. You know, how has that been? It's like having a virtual audience. It is really. And I think in a way we are kind of isolated in Townsville from a lot of the rest of the country. So we're, you know, we're a city, but we're a regional city. So we don't get the visitation. We don't get, you know, that engagement with the public as much as say museums in the big cities like Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne do. So having that social media profile as well really really helps um it helps with networking professionally it's amazing you know the people that I've met and the you know connections that we've been able to draw on um after having these profiles but you know I've only had the professional Instagram profile for almost two years now um and it has just really changed how we work and also how the museum has worked with us so I think you know you spoke that you had Maddie on the podcast as well she's got this incredible maritime archaeology focused work profile and then my museum profile is looking at you know the anthropology and social history and all of that you know back of house museum curator work which we do which no one ever really gets to see the light of day of so I I mean I personally just find it so thrilling to be able to share those bits and pieces because it's better to be transparent about the work that we do in museums um you know particularly when we're like we're working with culture and we're working with art and we're working with people so being able to put that out into the public in a much more Mm -hmm. informal way I think you know has really benefited the museum and us professionally um you know even just on a statistics and outreach level our um, marketing offices have really that you know they do a lot of cross promotion between the museum's official page and ours which is awesome Mm -hmm. Um, and it really does just open up the avenues for all these different people to come and learn about it it's incredible and 
kind of a natural transition into specifically like what your goal is largely with the museum, which is looking at decolonizing museum practices, making, you know, kind of making up for that history of non-transparency, non-ethical practices in museums. Tell us more about that. I know that's kind of a large subject, so maybe we kind of need to like break it down into points. <laughs> break it but... down a little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really, that's the underlying concept of it all is just breaking down those barriers. So, I mean, decolonization itself, like you would know, has, you know, it's got so much weight to it as a term as mm-hmm. well. And I know that there's a lot of critique and research out there talking about can museums as colonial institutions embedded in this whole system really be decolonized. Mm-hmm. Um, in Australia, there's more of a um, focus on indigenization um, of museums at the moment as a, mm-hmm. you know, a, an alternative term, which I think, you know, there's a lot of weight around both concepts, but I think the underlying underlying theme of all of that is really to look and have a clear view of what museums have been, how they started, where they've come from, and just having that transparent view of they're still not what they need to be they're Mm -hmm. you know they never have been and we're looking at it and they've always been these Eurocentric you know institutions full of white people um, making decisions about things that they shouldn't have been making decisions about so from a decolonization aspect all of the work that we do fundamentally is trying to break down those walls and restructure everything we know about museums and about the work that they do so it's such a you know it's such a broad concept but we just try and pull it into okay what's practical and what can we do from Mm -hmm. a base level yeah but I think um you know in Australia working with First Nations people is essentially the underlying core part of decolonization and everything that we do in the museum at the moment all of our projects are focused around this Mm -hmm. What's a tangible step that you hope to take in the, you know, coming future to continue that journey? Yeah, so staffing is a huge one. If you look at sort of institutional level, having First Nations people involved and actively in charge Mm -hmm. of their culture and their collections in museums is obviously a massive one from a more, um, I guess, on the ground point of view. um, What work and projects that we're doing at the moment are all about making sure that if any First Nations culture or art or collection items are being referenced in a museum, then that voice is coming from First Nations people. So we are not speaking for anyone that we don't have a connection with, essentially. So, and this comes into play in terms of our exhibitions, our outreach, any information that we're putting out there, it can't be coming from, say, myself, who's a white person, who doesn't have an Indigenous background, it's got like that knowledge is not ours to own and share without actually making sure that the people who own that story and own that culture are participating in you know the purpose of it yeah I really like that in my mind that almost seems like so simple but I'm just thinking about for example like we have uh, the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum which has a section on the Chumash how a a plaque describing an artifact will be different from a Chumash perspective than even from an anthropologist who's quote an expert in the field so I really I really like that that way of thinking and I also just briefly for our listeners is First Nations just another way of saying the Indigenous people of Australia? It is yeah yeah so um terminology and you know appropriation of terminology changes all of the time so Mm -hmm. there's never going to be a really blanket term that everyone is happy with either there's a lot of baggage with any sort of you know term to group 
group of people tending to go away from Indigenous Australians or Indigenous people mm -hmm. as a formal term um, purely because it doesn't really cover the complexity and diversity of all mm. the different cultural groups in Australia. So particularly in Queensland, we have Aboriginal people from the mainland, but we also um, include Torres Strait Islander people um, in our First Nations people as well. So we tend to specifically in the museum through our official avenues is talk about First Nations people or First mm -hmm. Peoples or um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a whole. Great. That's great for me to know as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for clarifying that. That's one of the things with the podcast is I just try to like take it down so that everyone, you know, we have anthropology listeners, but we also have some, you know, students that may be in high school. We even have a seventh grade listener. Shout out Alice. If you're listening, love you. Um, <laughs> hey Alice. <laughs> yes. Where did you attend uni and start this whole journey of becoming an archeologist or you may classify yourself more as an anthropologist? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a very typical story, right? I grew up on a farm and it was, you know, in the middle of the country and we used to go and dig up all these old bottles and things out the back of the house all the time. And I'd always like stick them up on my windowsill and my mom would go, this is trash. <laughs> um, but she let me do it. So it's great. <laughs> and then I, you know, grew up watching Indiana Jones and Tomb Raider, the whole classical like archaeology <laughs> basis. Um, I was super lucky then. And my parents took me to Egypt when I was wow. early high school, which was just like absolute game changer. Um, and they were always really passionate about us following our passions as well. So, you know, I always had a love for history and it was my favorite subject in school. And then when I got into the real world and actually got to make a decision about all of this, I went, great, well, I'm going to go and study archaeology because why the hell not? So, yeah, so I went to, um, I moved to Brisbane. I went to the University of Queensland, um, which is a huge campus and it's a really great university. Um, I studied Bachelor of Archaeology and History. And then as I was going through that, I sort of started transitioning into a few more anthropology-based subjects. Um, and I sort of got to the end of the degree and I'd done some volunteering and I'd been working in a few different areas. I'd done some field work as well, but lucky enough to go over to Cyprus um, and excavate a Bronze Age site, which was just amazing. Yes. Um, but then the more I thought about it and the more work I did in different um, areas, I sort of realized that as much as I love the fieldwork and I love the objects and all of the practical archaeology side, I actually really love working with people more. Yeah, museums was sort of the appropriate transition, I guess. And knowing that it meant I could facilitate just work with people and stories as opposed to just the objects themselves, that was really the, yeah, the avenue for me. That's really interesting because that's exactly how I feel now. Great. I, for a long time, was really interested in forensic anthropology and um, like working with the government. And as I've, you know, continued to have more life experiences, I've just realized that that's not necessarily like the right path for me and that I um, really like interacting with people and doing community outreach and, you know, teaching young kids all the way up to adults about our history as humans so I really I really connect to that and yeah it's yeah. amazing isn't it and I think just like knowing that you can have an impact on people and also you know mm -hmm. on the flip side being able to learn all of that from other people as well is so thrilling yes that's such a great point is that it's a never-ending learning process for yourself and that's what I love because I love like so many I'm what you could call like a world archaeologist and that I don't I'm not like I love exactly 
Bronze Age Greece. I'm just using that as an example because we talked about that. I used to always struggle. People would be like, what do you love as archaeology? Like, what's your what's your favorite area to research? I'm like, oh, what, do I have to just pick one? <laughs> exactly how I Oh, I was going to ask, what were some of your impressions of Egypt? I've never been, but I'm obviously oh. fascinated. I would go back in a heartbeat. I am just like, there's a, there's actually a um, ship's conference, like a shipwreck conference, oh. I think there in a couple of years. And Maddie and I from the museum have been like, okay, what is it like 2024? Yeah. We can bank on that. We can get back there. Um, yeah. It's just like, oh, I think even if you don't have a love of history and archaeology, anyone going to Egypt is going to just you know have their mind absolutely blown mm-hmm. I just remember we got there really late so we flew in and it was dark and late and we went in and stayed at our hotel and then our tour guide was like oh you know you wake up in the morning you'll be able to see xyz and we were like yeah 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 we don't really know where we are <laughs> and then we woke up in the morning and opened the curtains and we were like we could see the pyramids from our hotel room and I just remember that was one of like I will never forget that site which is incredible yes it just there's there's nothing that I can fault about Egypt it's just the most beautiful rich country did you enjoy the food oh yeah 100%. yeah so I was I really want to go back there because I feel like my tastes have developed since mm. I was there so I was quite young I think I was 13 when we yes. went to Egypt yeah so I feel like I've grown up a lot since then yeah. that's <laughs> um, actually like a fun caveat for people to know your tastes like actually changes you get older that's not like just something that your parents tell you like you actually develop new taste buds anyway continue yeah Yeah. I hate to like I hate to admit that to my parents who I know convince me to eat different foods but (laughs) it definitely does yeah but it was just oh the food is a game changer over there Mm -hmm. it's amazing and I think you know you know when you travel to Southeast Asia or anything like that people like oh be hesitant about street food it's like well Mm -hmm. that's the best cuisine that you can have for you there like you got to give it a go yeah I guess I must be hanging out with different people because I've never heard anybody, anybody oh. say that. I'm like, I'm like straight to the street food. Well, my yeah. dad and I were in Mexico. We were like staying in a nice resort with our family and it was, it was so lovely. But like where we would like go for dinner is like the little taco shack on the beach. And we would just like eat tacos yeah. on, on the beach while everyone was at the, like the resort dinner. Yes. And actually because we did that, we got to watch baby sea turtles hatch. Oh my god. We gosh. were, li- we were literally just sitting on the beach at our, at our resort. And we're on the chairs and I kid you not, all of a sudden little baby sea turtles keep start running by us. Is what, this a real experience? What do we, because obviously we're all, my stepmom's a marine biologist, like we all know, like we're not getting in the way we're, because it happens so quick, we're like getting out of the way. But then some of them, because the turtle had laid the nest under the beach volleyball court. Oh wow. So it, it had, the babies had to get past all the beach chairs mm-hmm. and they were getting trapped under the beach chairs so we got buckets and we were taking them out from under the beach chairs and bringing them to the water and it was literally like the coolest thing ever and the hotel employees were there too because it happens every year and so they knew and they're like getting them all out from behind the beach chairs and it was just the coolest thing that's so beautiful I've never seen it in person but I've seen videos as well Mm -hmm. I think they do it a lot on the coast here where they literally have like a team of volunteers who are carrying things above all of the baby turtles so they don't get picked up by birds and things like that as well for sure fragile experience yeah that's why when I tell that story it sounds like we were just being like crazy and like went somewhere where we knew there were going to be turtles and then like touched them and it's like no we were literally just eating dinner and all of a sudden (laughs) little turtles started crawling by us you know I actually just recently saw a turtle getting released out into the wild after it had been I think so magnetic island is just off the coast of Townsville it's like 
30 kilometers. So you jump on a ferry and you're there in 20 minutes. And we go over all the time. We went over for a weekend recently and there was this beautiful big turtle who had been injured by a boat propeller about a year ago. And so they nursed it back to health and he was all ready to go. And then they were releasing it. And it was the same thing. We just sort of went for coffee and saw this turtle being released. It was just so heartwarming. So magical. Yeah, because it's just good to know that like, as much as us humans kill animals, we can like help them sometimes, you know? <laughs> we love them too. <laughs> yeah, we, we love them too. Back to your experiences at uni, um, what did you focus your research on for your like master's degree? Mm-hmm. So my master's was in museum studies um, specifically. And so we did a thesis as part of that. So I actually focused mine on um, public engagement with museum collections. Wow. So it's sort of like early avenue into what I yeah. work in now, which I is I didn't know great. that. Yeah. And so it looked at, it was essentially a bit of a desktop study, um, looking at different case studies where museums had sort of put into play different projects and different avenues of public engagement and how you can facilitate that sort of interaction between people and collections. So for instance, it looked at tactile engagement with collections. So what are the benefits of actual physical touch between people coming in and being able to handle objects and learn Mm. more about them um, from a physical angle. And that sort of looked at, you know, just the learning capacity, but also an accessibility um, capacity as well, because there's a lot, you know, not our only sense. So being able to feel something and actually engage with it in that way is, you know, there's so many benefits. And then I also looked at um, different forms of engagement in terms of digital um, and online interaction with collections. So I think that's something that I'm really passionate now. Um, And there's a few different projects that we're looking at specifically in COVID times, you know, we've got to think outside the box in terms of what we can actually do and how Mm -hmm. we get these collections out. But we also get people into the collections to engage with these objects. So yeah, it was, I mean, now that I look back on it, it was a very good start for the work that I'm doing now because it really started me thinking about, okay, what are our options here and why haven't museums been doing more of this in the past? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also like, how can I get the museum that I go to, to be on board and convince them that it's worth their time to invest in, in this? Because I mean, museums, I'm sure are more open, but any time you go into a new job, it's really like, what can you bring that's outside of just like the basic uh, requirements of the job? And yeah. And I think really what you're emphasizing is that to be, you know, to, to be a science communicator, there are so many facets to it. It's not one article about exactly. it. It's, yeah, it's not it's, like, and I yeah. think what you said too about how, you know, sight is in our only sense, it brings it back to even the idea of like decolonizing equality is not equity. And mm-hmm. that's a really important lesson for people to learn. Equality yeah. means, and I just got had this exact example in my feminist studies class, means giving everyone the same size of, uh, size eight shoes and Mm -hmm. saying okay we gave you all the same shoes and equity is making sure that when a person with one leg gets one shoe and it's the right size or someone in a wheelchair you know what I mean different things like that and I think it's such a good point to say that not everyone who visits a museum has access whether it's momentarily or permanently to the site of the objects and how can we absolutely give them an experience beyond that yeah and it comes into play a little bit more in when we think about inclusivity in museums Mm -hmm. as well and it's not just about you know 
I mean, in some way, it's completely about the collections that we have, because, you know, if we look at these, we can see gaps where people haven't been included in the collecting and we're meant to be pulling together this reserve of this is human culture, you know, essentially in a museum collection. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look back on it and you try and quantify that, there are so many gaps, you know, we haven't got... Even just with Indigenous cultures collections, we've got um, really male-dominated items because all of the historic collectors who were collecting were men. So that really made an impact into the types of objects they were collecting. Or if you look at more recent social history, you know, we haven't got as many objects focused with women's history or trans history or LGBTQ. You know, there are so many avenues that you have to look at to make sure that this inclusivity is actually happening and you're at equity not just equality within collections and then how it plays out into outreach and exhibitions Mm -hmm. is a whole nother level so I don't you know it's it seems common sense to us but then trying to get it through in a certain amount of processes saying you can't expect everyone to come in and see themselves in the museum but they should be able to you know Mm -hmm. there should be something that everyone can relate to and that they can walk in and see that they are represented in a museum context when we're meant to be telling the story of everybody. Yes, that's such a great point that everyone should be able to walk in and see something that they can relate to or connect to. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely. But I think that, um, you know, there's... COVID in a way has opened up a lot of opportunities for us to sort of take stock of all of those things as well. You know, we've got a bit more time to look at our collections and focus on some gaps where we need to do some active collecting. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the public engagement side, for instance, I'm working on a project at the moment um, that's putting an entire collection that we've got on loan for um, one of our First Nations groups, um, putting it online in a digital format so that we can get some consultation happening with community members without, you know, being able to bring them into the museum for all sorts mm-hmm. of reasons um, in terms of access and vaccinations and all sorts of yeah. things. So, you know, we're trialing all these different forms where maybe we wouldn't have this, uh, haven't had the support to do it in the past. That's great. I'm really happy to hear that. Is there something that you're really excited about in the next um, like few years for the museum or an object or like a certain piece of research that's kind of like up and coming you're excited about? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> well, please tell us more than one. <laughs> I'll tell you more than one. I'll tell you about yes. everything. Um, Love it. So we actually, this is sort of like a little pet project of mine. Um, in the last 12 months, we installed a new First Nations display in the foyer of the museum. So um, it's just amazing. And I get so excited. You will be able to see it all on my Instagram as well. Um, but we have installed this large scale mural, um, which features the work of a local emerging First Nations artist. His name is John Bro Pryor. Um, so he's Townsville based and he created this work on a canvas and it's all about the museum is a center for connection between community and culture and history and the future. And it's just this vivid, colorful, you know, diverse work. It's beautiful. So we blew it up into a large scale mural and um, it's the first thing that you see when you walk into the museum now, It's beautiful, which is amazing. And we've had like incredible feedback and I sort of, you know, I come from a background where I'm like art and culture really intersect with one another um, and the museum hasn't been as focused on that in the past for, you know, different collections, different curators. And so being able to bridge that gap because we have a really amazing network of First Nations artists um, and the art network up here is so important that being able to bring that into the museum as well um, 
has really yeah. benefited Townsville as a whole. So yeah, so that's actually going to be a rotating display for us. So we're going to work and commission an artwork from a local artist every 12 months. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a great turnover. And then that piece will become part of the collections that we hold here as a bit of an example of how contemporary art is so entwined in First Nations culture and how mm-hmm. we need to keep on top of that as opposed to just letting art be in a gallery and object yeah. be in a museum. So that's, yeah, we're in the process of installing or we're developing the next um, piece for that artwork, which will be really exciting. So in around September, we'll have a bit more information about what that will look like. Oh. Um, and then other projects that I'm really excited about is we're doing a lot of language work at the moment with the collections. So working with um, different community groups up the coast here in North Queensland um, and incorporating First Nations languages into our database of collection items. So as opposed to just having everything recorded as they traditionally have been in terms of Western names, um, actually prioritising First Nations languages and then having our Western translations as secondary. So we're doing that in exhibitions. We're also working um, with Girigan Aboriginal Arts Centre up in Cardwell on the coast of Queensland and we're going to be working with them hopefully a bit more in the future once COVID settles down again and just to really get that engagement that first person voice into the collection database which is very exciting for us. That is very exciting I mean other museums like take note I don't know what to say other than like everyone just like (laughs) listen up (laughs) this is what we should all be focusing on and again it's not and that's not to say like that we all have to snap our fingers and things will happen like no it takes time it takes ideas but starting the process is what we you know have to get going yeah Um, about like building those relationships and getting those ideas started and then it can steamroll mm-hmm All right. So I have something that I talked to Maddie about this as well. And I just, I love hearing about it. Something that you get to do a lot is dig through old records and old articles. And you've mentioned on your Instagram that that's something you'll never grow tired of. Um, Aside from that, what are some of your other favorite parts of working at the museum or specific, like maybe there's a specific like reference section that you like to dig through the most? I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. I am such a fan of old newspapers. My mum was a journalist growing up. So I think that sort of like started me off in that in that way. But yeah, I could sit on show for hours and I have many a time realized what the time is and gone, oh no, <laughs> I need to get out of the archive section. My brain is going, is getting fried. <laughs> um, yeah, I love it so much. And I think um, I've just published um a paper last year as well that was the culmination of four years of trudging through archives essentially so I've had a little bit of a break from it now and I can be like what else do I love doing yeah (laughs) um but yeah I think gosh I really love the nitty-gritty of collection work as much as I love getting out there and doing you know the research and the outreach Mm -hmm. and exhibitions actually just having a couple of days and doing the you know taking photos of objects and getting in there and rehousing them into better storage systems, that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. is just so good to do. And it, you know, is so beautiful and organized. Um, I think overwhelmingly though, my favorite part of being a curator is being able to talk to people and have people come in and have them tell me about the collection items that we have. And I think being able to make sure that we're, 
being told stories from people who own those stories and who know those stories is just amazing. And like what you were saying before, you know, I can look at, for instance, a fruit bowl in my house and have a connection with it and interpretation of it that you would have a completely different perspective of. And so knowing that and going in and looking at a certain item in the collection and then having someone else come and tell me something that's completely different about or something so new is just the coolest experience. So mm-hmm. I think that is definitely my favorite part of working in the museum. Yeah. What advice would you give to other students or professionals who want to pursue a career in museum work? Mm, I think as cliche as it sounds, um, knowing that you don't have to do something that you might've thought that you wanted to. So you have before you were saying like archeology, span that was what you started off being passionate about and then forensic anthropology yeah forensic anthropology sorry yeah um and so archaeology for me and then transitioning into anthropology and museums it's okay to refocus and the world changes so much and you know I think even just during COVID everyone's priorities have shifted so if you know you start off volunteering or you start off working in a certain role know that it's okay if that doesn't want to be your end game or if you start at thinking that mm, maybe this isn't what I want to do, that's okay. Give it a go. Trial something else. Like there are so many opportunities as much as people say that there's, you know, we know that there's not a huge amount of jobs in our industry, yeah. but there is different opportunities that are entwined in the whole network of mm-hmm. history and culture and all sorts of yeah. things. So I think just be open to the opportunities that pop up. Yeah. I could literally cry because <laughs> the fact that the <laughs> no, fact that you that. then the fact that you turned it to to me like and I'm just going to be honest and this is something I've actually been wanting to talk with the listeners about is you know I started my grad pro like searching for grad schools being like I want to go to a specifically forensic anth program and as mm-hmm. I started to tour them and this is not like while there may have been like certain programs that weren't a right fit like for other reasons it wasn't that it was like oh I hated the people it was that I started to see the lives of these forensic anth grad students and they seemed super happy with that and I was like mm, I'm just not sure I can imagine myself doing this and so I was with my mom on the east coast touring grad schools you know because I know you know that grad school applications is a process you have to start a year in advance. It's not, um, you have to interview, you know, it's not just something that you submit an application and it goes into the void and you've never talked to anyone at that school. It's it's a really big commitment. Mm. And I'm sitting on the East coast crying in my hotel room. Cause I'm like, my, my heart, no, my brain thinks it wants to do forensic anthropology, mm-hmm. but my heart knows that I can't handle the stress that comes with forensic anthropology. The yeah. realities of death law enforcement you know testifying in court even for me I really just realized like I don't want to spend my life testifying in court and again that is not to say some people that's what they want that's what they thrive on and I just started to realize that it wasn't for me and in the last couple months I've almost felt like a failure that Mm -hmm. this thing I've spouted to everyone my whole life I want to do is changing. And it's, while it's not changing drastically, I still want to do scale, you know, osteology. I just want to focus on bioarchaeology and museum work. Mm -hmm. It's been, it's felt like a, like a, like a failure, but it's not, but it's like my own internal guilt. So I think you saying that means so much because, you know, 
I'm a, you know, I'm still a student. So I'm still going through all of that. And to hear it from someone who's already been through that, I think is so important. I sometimes wonder, and I'm going to do like a whole episode about this. You know, the whole goal of the podcast is to like break down the stereotype that there's one path into a field. And yet Mm -hmm. I, as the host, not my guests have been preaching that I know exactly what I want to do. And I don't. And so I think it's going to start to be part of my new journey is to include that transparency in what I enjoy and what I don't. And just Mm -hmm. being like, that's just me. You know, like I said, I, I feel some sort of guilt. I'm working on letting it go. Shout out to my therapist. Um, (laughs) You know, that I don't want to do forensic anthropology. There's, I don't need to feel that guilt because there are plenty of other students out there that are like, get, get, get it to me now. Like, yeah. And also reassuring for other students to see then being like, it's okay because so many people are going through this like turmoil of maybe what I thought I wanted originally isn't what I want now. And I mean, if it's any reassurance to you, I have seen so many people as well in our industry, like people that I studied with going to something completely different Mm -hmm. after uni because they were like, great, I can have a passion about this, but I don't necessarily want to do the job. And, you know, other friends of mine who have been in exactly the same position where they get halfway through something or fully through something and then go, you know what, that was great for them, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily great for the future me. And, you know, when you think about bigger picture, it's kind of like crazy to think that, we will know when we're students what we want to do and that we'll know exactly what a job is going to be like when you get into it you know it's you never really know until you're right in that zone so yeah I think the transparency of what you've been talking about is so incredible and knowing that you're at a point as well to acknowledge that you want to maybe change up your path Mm -hmm. is so great and like what we were saying with social media it's just a benefit to everyone really and to ourselves to be more transparent about the fact that it's not a streamlined process it's not and that's something I really want to work on on the podcast is just like sharing my journey because I feel like I've already dealt with a lot of stuff that I've just kept private and I'm not sure if I'm not saying like personal things. I just mean like, like professional career wise things that I've just like gone through that I feel like would be helpful to share because if someone else goes through them, it'll be less intimidating because they're like, Oh my God, even if they can just be like, Gabby went through that and she's still going like, that's all I, that's all I need. You know, I don't want to perpetuate this this stigma that you should know exactly what you want to do because I don't and I've felt really guilty that I don't but I'm starting to figure it out and I'm very 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 happy to say that I will be doing a master's in bioarchaeology um very close to a lot of museums so hell yeah because I'm not sure when this episode's coming out so I don't know if I can say more than that yeah um, (laughs) that's fine you'll be in your museum that's all that counts I know (laughs) But everyone get ready for that announcement if I haven't already announced it on Instagram yet by the time you're listening to this. Yay. Super exciting. Yeah. Huge news. There was screaming and jumping that went on. I told my <laughs> uh, my neighbors, my upstairs neighbors, because I live in an apartment, because um, I knew I was going to find out like this week or next week. I told them, I said, if you just hear a scream, like I'm not being <laughs> murdered, I because they're, fr- they're my friends. I'm like, I'm good. It's just that I got into grad, grad <laughs> Don't get school. Too consent. Yeah. And they were super just career sweet. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so thrilling. (laughs) I mean, I can even look at it from uh, like my perspective of how I've changed Mm -hmm. what area that I want to work in as well. So, you know, I started off 
working in Indigenous cultures and I absolutely love it and thrive Mm -hmm. in it but I also have such a clear passion for social history and contemporary collecting and Mm -hmm. so I'm sort of at the moment in my career I think I'm at a um a bit of a fork in the roads in a way Mm -hmm. where I'm trying to figure out how can I combine those two passions into the one thing and you know in theory in museums it should be easy to be able to incorporate both those research areas but in practice it's actually a lot harder Mm -hmm. so I mean you know we were talking about possibilities of doing further study and PhD and that sort of thing and the reason I haven't gone on to do my PhD yet is because I really want to narrow down what area do I really need to see a need for for further Mm -hmm. research you know I don't want to step into a field where someone else can put more into it either so and they have a better perspective of it so I want to find what's exactly an area that I can put my expertise in and have some real change for sure Yeah. yeah and it's and it's good to know too that like again it's important to say you can get a job after you get your master's and it oh, yeah. doesn't mean you're not going to get a PhD and it doesn't mean you then have to get one. Like there are, you can get one, you cannot get one. Like you can get one 10 years later. It doesn't matter. And I think yeah. the, tr- again, this like this stigma, this idea of the traditional pipeline is, is undergrad to PhD or undergrad masters to PhD. And it's like, no, that mm-hmm. time in between can be really important. And even if it's like working a job at a restaurant to make money, to support the dream, Mm-hmm. it's time and that yeah. time to mull over those thoughts is what's important even if it's, and it's that life experience and work experience yes. as well you know I always say this to people but the amount of knowledge that I had coming from uni was yeah theoretical knowledge and I'd had some practical experience in museums and working with mm-hmm. communities but until I got in the role and then it sort of just steamrolled and I was forced into situations where I'm like you got to learn on your feet and you've got to mm-hmm. you know you got the theory put it into practice and the amount that I learned then in the first 12 months of this role and then since then has just almost thrown everything out because mm-hmm. it, it is all different and actually yeah. when you get to that practical experience you're like wow there is so much that I needed to learn and I wouldn't have been able to do that without giving myself a chance to yeah definitely I completely agree mm-hmm. um I just I really appreciate you just talking about all that. I think it's so important. <laughs> I think, like you said, it we've, we'll say it again and again, but it's the transparency. None of us are going through anything alone and it feels like it and it shouldn't feel like that, especially in COVID. We're mm-hmm. all dealing with, whether it's government, social, medical, you know, maybe you're quarantining for two weeks. Like we're all dealing with something every single week. I email people and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm getting back to you a week later. I'm like, no. I'm the same way. Like we're all good. Do what you need to do to get through this and to to try and thrive, not just get through, but if just getting through is what we can do, then that's, that's enough too. Um, I I really value at the moment as well. I mean, I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's starting to just become more of the norm, but people are accepting that we don't want to be living in grind culture either. Like no. if you, you know, don't glorify the busyness of everything. Yes. And you don't have to be working at 110% all the time. Like yeah. it's just not sustainable for anyone. And I Mm-mm. think maybe people are starting to realize that more and more with COVID, but you know, we're what three years into a pandemic. So we've got to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that it's going to be how it is. 
So the last thing I just want to ask about, this is how I always like to end my episodes is just like, tell us a bit about your life outside of work, outside of the museum. What kind of activities do you like to do? I mean, I love living in Townsville right now. I feel like it's so suited for my lifestyle at the moment. And growing up in Queensland specifically, but growing up in the country as well, like avid hiker, avid camper, any chance that we can get, we're outside, which is just beautiful. And we luckily have the climate that's pretty suited to that. So, I mean, Townsville's beautiful. We're centered right on the coast. Um, But we've also, you know, we're literally a hop, skip and a jump to the rainforest and the tropics. Mm -hmm. So it's just a beautiful area to live in. So we're always outside. We're at a waterfall. We're at the beach wherever we can. Um, I love live music as well. So Townsville actually is becoming a bit of a hub for um, bands to visit too, which it didn't used to be, but it's actually got a little bit of a name for itself at the moment. And realistically, like within Queensland, even within the rest of the country, um, everything's opening up a little bit to a certain point so we can get out and we can go to different places. So I think that's great. Travel's my number one um, love as well. And mm-hmm. if we can do a bit more of that in the next few months, that'll be, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Do you like to go swimming in the ocean quite a bit? Love it. Unfortunately, yeah. we don't have the best beaches here. Mm. <laughs> it's better down Southeast Queensland and over on the West Coast, but um, the beaches are still amazing here. We do have stingers up here. Mm. So yeah. deadly jellyfish. Um, so we have certain areas that we can swim in in the beach for when stinger season like May to November so it's most Mm. of the year and outside Mm -hmm. of that it's pretty pretty hot down on the beach but we make it work there's so many inland waterfalls and creeks that you can go to oh that's really pretty that's a real benefit yeah yeah it's just amazing do you have have a favorite Australian animal oh it's Maddie's was the swimming was the swimming snakes oh yeah we never (laughs) (laughs) everyone touts all of the like deadly Australian animals and we're like oh you know (laughs) we're a bit blase with them um I think mine would have to be wallabies Mm. we they're like little baby kangaroos essentially um we had heaps of them growing up around where we were and we just like drive up to the gym or drive into school (laughs) and there was just wallabies hopping along the side of the road so that'll koalas we have koalas are quite endangered at the moment but over on magnetic island up here um, off Townsville there is the koala sanctuary um, and you can go and you can see them and being they're being cared for and sometimes so if you sweet. do some of the hikes it's just on the normal um, hiking trails you can see some koalas as well just chilling in trees so we try and make sure that the backpackers don't harass them and take yeah. photos yeah because <laughs> they can't even they're like moving so slowly they're like I can't even get away from you quickly yeah. <laughs> it's like come on guys I'm just chilling out yeah <laughs> they're like in their hammock yeah I love it I love it well thank you so much for speaking with me today 